Okay, how many of you just got this huge lump in your throat when a boy hugged his sister in the middle of a song over here? I was just, I can't stand it. They're so adorable. My fishnicket is stuck in my galactica zoink. Hey, I won't repeat. I need to pull that joke out once a year, so I won't repeat it. In case you missed it, you'll laugh next year. So, Man, there was one kid up here. He had his T-shirt all tucked in, his belt on and everything. He was a worship leader at Kid You See Him. He's like, it's like it's about ready to sign him up. All right, we have just a few minutes together before we dismiss and ask the gentleman to stick around. So I... I I'm going to try to do a, a bit of a hack job on some of these notes and move through them a little quickly, but you might remember a couple weeks ago, I asked you just to accomplish one thing until we met again. Two weeks later, I have one question for you. How many of you were able, and I want to see hands, how many of you were able to avoid a bar fight over the last couple of weeks? All right, not all of you could raise your hands where there's room for growth. We're a church of all different types here. So it's very encouraging that most of you, I would say probably 75% of you, stayed out of the bar fights this, this last couple of weeks. So that's encouraging. But uh, we were talking about bar fights out of 1 Timothy 3. It was our analogy, and so we'll explain that in just a second in case you missed any of that. But, uh, you know, you don't have to show me hands anymore on this. But maybe over the last couple of weeks, instead of, you know, you weren't in a situation where you were going to actually get into a brawl. But maybe you're in a situation where that typical pull on you to engage in either a verbal confrontation or just a a fight or tension or something like that, maybe over the last couple of weeks you were able to avoid that a little better. Maybe some of the things that we talked about out of 1 Timothy 3 uh, engaged your thinking and kind of clamped down on your tongue and, and it just stopped you short of making that typical usual mistake of being lured into that trap and, uh, and just going for the fight. Hopefully that was the case. Uh, it was my contention a couple weeks ago that most people end up in verbal battles and sometimes in physical ones, unfortunately, because they don't have a game plan before going into these situations. We're on cruise control. We show up in the moment and we don't think about the fact, okay, this person pushes my buttons or this scenario always catches me off guard or whenever I've worked a 12-hour shift when I get home, why, why are we always in a fight in the kitchen because of that? You're not thinking ahead about... What's the situation going to present? And what are my kind of trigger points of the things that draw me into those things? And so 1 Timothy 3.3, as it's going through the list of what makes leadership stable and what makes the church environment more stable and creates sort of this conducive environment for discipleship in the church, was specifically saying, find men who are peaceable and gentle and they are not, what was the P word I told you to drop in a conversation a couple weeks? Anybody? Oh, you're cheating. I didn't, I didn't coordinate the slide timing on that. It's my bad. See, Pastor Bill's just got it down like that. I'm a rookie. Pugnacious. Remember I said, you know, if you're, if you're trying to have a discussion, usually we say, hey, look, I'm not trying to pick a fight here. So now you've got a new word. I'm not trying to be all pugnacious on you now, okay? So drop that. It'll be very impressive. It'll give you a chance to talk about the Bible. You'll win lots of people to Christ. It's just that one word is the key to all of it. So... Pugnacious. What does it mean? It means the opposite of what the verse says. It says, but instead to be gentle or peaceable. So pugnacious means to be contentious. Someone who goes around looking for a fight. 
And the reason why the bar fight analogy was used a couple weeks ago is because it demonstrates how easily engaged we are in a battle. And all of a sudden we wake up and realize, okay, the whole thing is smashed. We've got glass everywhere. Someone got got thrown through the front window. How did we end up here? I just showed up to have a good time. And now all of a sudden this. And that's the way it goes with our, with our uh, skirmishes and, and the way that we, we go at each other sometimes. Because we do love a good fight. The, pro- the, the problem is, is we hate the way we feel after the fight has happened. People of wisdom and balance determine their pitfalls ahead of time. And they make a plan to avoid that nasty feeling, that pit in your stomach that comes from being at odds with the people around you. Paul told Timothy that true leaders have to have a better handle on their emotions if they're going to demonstrate the balance that is necessary for a church to actually foster this uh, environment of discipleship or, or another phrase for discipleship, if you're not quite familiar with that, is, is Christian growth or Christian maturity, that process that happens as we grow closer to the Lord over time. And so Paul told Timothy that true leaders have to have a better handle on these emotions. The guy that's going around with a short fuse is not the guy who's fit to lead. Remember, we talked about God isn't looking for perfection. He knows it doesn't exist outside of his son. And so he says, I'm going to establish leadership and health in the church with the people that perhaps their pendulum is still swinging. They have battles just like everybody else, but that swing isn't quite so wide, these extremes. And as we saw in 1 Timothy 3, it was that, that swinging this far over to the extreme about instead of being someone who's wise, you're, you're blown around uh, with every wind of doctrine, as the scripture says. Anything that comes along that has a, a fancy argument or something very compelling, you're thinking, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I need to give that some more thought. Or on the other side, you're just such a skeptic, you won't believe in anything you can't understand. And so anything that, that requires some thought or some faith or something, you just shut it down. But instead, the, the God's leader is that person whose pendulum is still swinging because they are people with sin, but it's just not quite these big, giant gaps and these big, huge momentum shifts. If we're not careful, though, we can just look at these things as though they can be controlled on the outside. Like we said a couple weeks ago, just stay out of the bar fights. Don't get drawn into those situations. But it isn't just some external discipline you can, you can just clamp on. And, and then the Lord's pleased with that. Instead, what he wants us to think about, and I think what the scriptures force us to think about, is what's going on in the inside before it even comes out of here, before it even turns into one of these. So where do we stop this way before? And that's really at the heart of what Paul is telling Timothy to look for, is where this control is happening on the inside. So to help us understand what's going on on the inside, we're just going to look at a small passage out of the book of James. Where James starts chapter 4 off by asking the question, what is the source, that's what we want to know, where are all these things coming from, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your, in your body parts or in your fists or in your tongue or in the things that control you? That's what the scriptures mean by when it says, in your members. You know, we're hearing so much about climate change and we've got to believe in there's the science, this and all that kind of stuff. I think the only climate change that the people of faith really need to be hopped up on right now is the climate we're walking around in. I want you to picture for just a second, you know, pig pen from the peanuts. You know, he's got a climate of filth, right, that he walks around and it follows him everywhere. The little flies are swirling around and everything. And we have to often wake up and realize that most people, or a lot of people, I should say, are walking around in a climate of contention. 
You know, we hear statements all the time of people saying, I don't know why everybody hates me. I just go, I just try to be a nice person. And I don't know, everywhere I go, someone's picking on me or someone hates me or someone's throwing this at me or something. I don't know why these things happen to me. I'm not looking for trouble. We've gotten used to an environment or a climate of contention around us. And we don't even realize where it's coming from. And so people of faith need to have a climate change where we're walking around in a, in a climate of peace. And the difference there is that a, a peaceful climate is looking for an opportunity to right the wrongs of other people that are in your, in your purview or within your reach. Where a climate of contention is someone who's looking for an opportunity to fight for their own rights, their own voice to be heard. And that's where that climate change needs to happen. James 4, uh, 2, as he continues in this passage, he cranks up the language a little bit here. He says, what is the source and the quarrels and all these things? Where, where is it all coming from? He says, because you lust, it's a pretty strong word, you lust and do not have. There's another strong word. So you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. Very strong words. And this isn't just hyperbole. He's not just saying, all right, so figuratively you're out there murdering people. What he's trying to get across is lust and such a strong word because we think of lust in a certain context, but, but still imagine sort of the emotion that's behind lust. And he's saying, now put anything that you want, anything that you crave, anything that you're willing to fight over, and I want you to see it in the context of lust. That thing that, you, that you're tempted to drool over, that thing that kind of haunts your mind and you can't shut it off in the middle of the night, or that thing that you think about when you're driving the car kind of on autopilot, that thing you want. He says that's the problem. That's where it's all dwelling up inside of you and it's creating this, this lustful climate around you. And it's causing you to act out in ways that is the same guilt as the person who would go off and murder somebody. Now, hopefully most of us in this room, hopefully all of us, I should say, or else you're going to scare me a little bit, but hopefully all of us have never experienced murdering somebody. And so what we have to understand is that we have a tendency to say, well, I didn't kill anybody. What do we always say? Well, I'm not Hitler. I'm not this. And we always minimize what we do by comparing it to somebody else. James isn't letting us off the hook here, though. He says the same lust, the same thing that's welling up inside of you is the same heart condition, the same focus that would cause somebody else to go out and commit murder. You just happen to be better at shutting it down on the outside. But don't minimize what's going on in your heart as you think about these things. So it's not necessarily what you want is always the problem. It is how badly you want it. We have a culture where we minimize our own things. We, we throw out this phrase. We say, oh, it's just a guilty pleasure or it's just, you know, my personality thing or it's just my upbringing and that's just how I act when I'm in these situations or it's just the kind of thing I want. We minimize our own faults. And in a moment, we'll talk about how looking at it from an outsider's point of view uh, puts it in better perspective. 1 John 3.15 says, Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life within them. So we may want things that are okay for us, but that want turns into what we perceive to be a need, which then turns into a demand, which then turns into that struggle to obtain the thing. And then before you know it, after the struggle's over, you look down and you're holding the weapon that finished the fight with all of its guilt all over it. And you're kind of waking up to the fact, how did I get here? This is not what I intended at all. 
How did I end up doing this to that other person? It gets away from us. It controls us. It's because it's a lust that fuels us. What gets us in trouble is when we fight to obtain the created thing. The thing that God has made beautiful with his hands becomes the thing that we want so badly. Instead of our focus being on the one who made it, we want what he's made more than anything else. Now, I know that sounds nice, and that is a theological point. I know that sounds nice on a Sunday morning, but if we really think about what that means, Lord, I settle for all of the things that you create, all the beautiful things that you've made. I've settled on those things for my satisfaction rather than saying, if I never had any of those, you'd be enough for me. The trick is, how do we get to that point? It sounds beautiful in our worship songs. It sounds like the kind of thing a preacher should say when he's opening the Bible. But you and I, we sometimes have this disconnect between, but it's the stuff I can see, it's the stuff I can feel, the stuff I can taste. That's the thing that I can equate real life to because it's, it's before me. I'm a physical person. And God is spiritual and he seems so aloof. He seems so far away from me. How do I make him personal? James continues and says, after he said, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder, you're envious, you can't, you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel, he says, you do not have because you just simply did not ask. Now, we've got to be careful about this, right? Because there's usually two extremes of people. There's the type of person who doesn't ask for anything because I can take care of it, I can provide for myself, I don't need anybody else's help. And then there's the other person who never stops asking. Right? They just depend on everybody else for everything they need and, and supply for them. So we have to have a balance in here. And so when I look at this, this phrase of you do not have because you do not ask, what we see so often is that we have plenty of people that are asking, but they're asking either incorrectly or they're not asking the right question. You know, if God is saying, I just want you to come to me, I just want you to ask me, and you see how he is in all the rest of Scripture and how it balances out, it sounds a little bit more like, Lord, I know I want this thing, and you know I want this thing, but I don't know if you want me to have this thing, whatever it is. And don't just put in, like we said earlier, don't just put the bad stuff in the fill in the blank there. Put even some of the best things you can think of that even Scripture says is good for us to have. But Lord, I don't know if it's right for me right now. I don't know if this is what you've willed in my life. I don't know if this is going to satisfy the big plan that you're doing in the lives of people around me. So maybe I'm asking for the wrong thing. So James says partly the reason why you don't have is because you don't ask. But maybe also the reason why you don't have is because you're not asking if it's right for you. Secondly, he goes on in the, rest of, in the, in the next verse. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. So that you may spend it on who? Yourself. On your own pleasures. What is the thing that detectives in all the great murder mysteries and all the movies and stories and in real life are looking for whenever they're out investigating a crime scene? They're looking for a murder weapon, right? They want to be able to find the evidence there so they can dust it for prints and do all that stuff. But as they're building their case to go make the arrest, the other thing that they're looking for is motive. What is the reason somebody would have to kill somebody? And so if we have that motive established, now we can go and say, okay, we have at least enough evidence to bring you in for further questioning and to take it from there. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. Is he says, I'm looking for your motive in asking this question. I want to know why you're bringing this to the Father. I want to know why you want this so badly. What's your motive? Who do you plan to spend this on? So it could be a great thing. 
It may not even be a great thing. Maybe you're not mature enough in your faith to know the difference between what's good and bad. But I want to know, more importantly, why you're asking for what you're asking for. What or who do you intend to spend this blessing on? So a simple question at this point could be, what if we started practicing using what we already have for other people before we start asking for the thing we don't have with the temptation of using it on ourselves? Does that make sense? All right, Lord, if I'm going to be trusted with the the next thing, and I'm being very general on purpose with that, if I'm going to be trusted for the next thing, maybe... I need to make sure that I'm willing to let go of what I already have. And if I'm willing to let go of what I already have, and I'm starting to, starting to use it for other people's good, then probably what's going to happen in my heart, what's going to happen in that, that kind of internal you know, lust problem, is I'm going to start thinking about maybe I don't need the next thing. It was kind of fun using what I had on the, the people that needed it over here. And it starts to replace your desire, and that feeling isn't welling up so strong within us causing us to to fight with others, causing us to to enter into that struggle with other people. So James is saying, be careful because maybe you're just not an asker and you need to stop being self-reliant. You need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I really need you to come through on this. It's a heart's desire, but God, I also want to make sure that this is right for me, so please only give me in your will what you think I should have. But, But also you might be the type of person who's asking all the time and saying, well, I keep asking God, but he doesn't come through. So then slow down and say, why am I asking him for this? What do I plan to do with it? James continues with the harsh language. After he already said that that we're guilty of lust and we're committing murder, he says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's a reason why he is giving such shocking language is because if, if we're being honest, right, we minimize the stuff we do. We don't look at it so shockingly. You know, it's a personality uh, flaw. It's a, it's a guilty pleasure. It's those kinds of things. We minimize. And so James needs to shock us into reality. What's really going on is something much uglier. And that's what's starting all the fights that you're having around you. Let me give you a current uh, event illustration. And again, because of time, I've got to just really zip through this. But right now, if you've, if you've watched any headlines and things, the president's getting all sorts of heat from certain areas and stuff about the, the uh, deal that has been made with Iran. And so people are trying to figure out what the deal really is. Now there's a, there's a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, there's, a, there's a meeting coming up next week that's all confidential. It's not confidential. It's forget it. It's secret. That's why he's a pro. So so there's a meeting coming up so people can even find out what this deal is all about, right? Because apparently it's done. Apparently it's been made. And why people all around the world are frustrated is because the symbol of what Iran represents is state-sponsored terrorism, they have said out loud, we're going to annihilate Israel and wipe them off the map, and that's at the highest levels of their government and leadership and all these things, and now all of a sudden we're shaking hands with them saying, hey, welcome to the table. 
So now just think about this from a perspective of how those kinds of things get us all uh, just, you know, there's this thing that rises up within us. And we say, how could you do that? You're trading with the enemy. You're, 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 you know, shaking hands with the enemy. And now all of a sudden, you know, everything's supposed to be okay. And we're just supposed to cross our fingers and, and all that kind of thing. And, and there's a lot of skepticism as to whether or not it would work. The point is, is not to make necessarily a headline comment on this, but to relate to the fact that when we see things like that, fear wells up within us, anger might well up within you, uh, uh, confusion, uh, secrecy, all these kinds of things, and the whole thing feels off. But yet when you and I give in to that lust that is building within us and we start going for the juggler of of the other person to get what we crave to get out of them what we think we deserve, and we, we fight with them to get from them what we think we need for happiness, security, safety. The scripture is saying, don't you understand that when you make alliances with the world, you have become the stated enemy of God. You're shaking hands with God's enemy saying, look, I know God that he's been this, this enemy, this Satan guy has been against you from the beginning, and I know he's caused you a lot of turmoil, and I know ultimately his goal is to get us out of the way so he can defeat you, but for now, now he's got something I need. So let's just play this out. Let's just see where this goes in the future. So our shock and, and the fact that we're stunned when we see this going on on a global scale, what's going on within us personally when we yield to that lust that grows? Why aren't we as disgusted by our own actions when we lock allegiances and alliances with God's sworn enemy to say, I know I should be approaching this person in Christian love I know I should be giving more. I know I should be sacrificing more. I know I should make this relationship about them and not me and all those kinds of things. But for now, I need something. And God's not really coming through for me, so why don't I get it from his enemy? Why don't I do things his way instead? And as we wrap up, let's just cover one piece that's probably hanging out there in a lot of people's minds, and that is, is a peaceable, gentle person a pacifist? 1 Timothy 3.3 says, Don't be addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle and peaceable. And so if we go into this verse thinking what we've been taught, predominantly since the 60s, I would say, that for the most part we could easily interpret that verse as saying, so what you just need to do is sit off to the side with a sign and just hope everything turns out for the better. Let's just be peaceable people. But there's a big difference between someone who is willing to fight and someone that is hoping that one breaks out. Peaceable in, this, in the context of what the scriptures say is something that has much more to do with activity that goes towards solving the problem than someone who's just willing to stand on the sidelines and yell and scream about something. But what, what Timothy is trying to address, or what Paul's trying to address through Timothy here, is that if you go out and find a leader who is hoping a fight breaks out, fight, fight, fight. Let's get this thing going. That is a person with a short fuse. But someone who's willing to step up when called upon and willing to fight is also part of uh, being the right kind of leader. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct. That's confrontation. Rebuke, that's a stronger form of confrontation. Go after the people that are in error and stand up to them and point them in the right direction. Encourage your people with good teaching. 1 Timothy 6.12 says, fight the good fight for the true faith. Even Jesus told those in authority in John 18, he says, my kingdom isn't an earthly kingdom because if it was, 
My followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. If my kingdom were here on this earth and not something else I was trying to accomplish, you guys would have a fight on your hands, let me tell you. These guys wouldn't let this go passively. And so a peaceable person isn't a pacifist. Instead, what they are is a strategist. They are the person who's looking for the right opportunity to fight, and they're looking for an opportunity to fight for the right kingdom. This isn't a fight about me. This is a a fight about what God cares about. Stan Mikita, a professional hockey player, hockey star, used to get in so many fights during the games, and he stopped when his 8-year-old daughter asked him the question, Hey, how can you score goals when you're already always in the penalty box? He started changing his strategy, and people now remember him as a great hockey player. Someone who's ready to fight is not a pacifist. They are a strategist. I need to be available to fight the fight that God says, now this is the one you get involved in. You're not locked up in a jail cell because you got caught up in a tassel that you had to fight for your honor in some bar somewhere. Instead, God has you ready to go. Being willing to fight, but not out looking for one or hoping one breaks out. That's really what we're talking about here. And then we have to uh, run it short there and, uh, and, and close it off now. So, so la- a couple weeks ago, the goal was stay out of bar fights. So far, I think most people succeeded at that. That application still continues. We would like you to keep that streak going. That'd be great. But also, to really keep a, a lid on what is welling up in my heart. You know, one thing to ask yourself is as you're saying, okay, Lord, I want to ask you for this thing or I want to trust you for what I think I need. And then, uh, then when the question comes, well, is this a you thing or a God thing? And you answer that with, I've thought about it or I've prayed about it. I really think this is a God thing. Now follow up that self-examination with, are you sure about that? And then when you say, yeah, I think so, follow up again. Are you really sure about that? Are you really, really, really sure? You just keep going down the line. Why? Because we can take even godly things. We can take clean things. We can take good things that most people around us might have. And we turn it into a demand because why don't I have it? I deserve it too. Are we looking to spend it on our own pleasures? Or is it something the Lord really has for us? Would you stand please as we close in prayer? And then we're going to ask our ladies to, um, to dismiss and ask our men to stick around. So, God, we thank you for doing what you have in our midst this morning. We thank you so much for the celebration of uh, the generational shift that is taking place in our nation and on a micro level here in our church. We thank you for raising up children. Thank you for raising up worshipers. Thank you for raising up uh, students of your word. Thank you for all that you've accomplished here this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Gentlemen, please stick behind.